If you're new here, I want to welcome you uh, to the third and final week of uh, a little three-week vision series we wanted to kind of cap off the summer with and get ready for the fall. Uh, If you are hopping in for the first time, the purpose of this series is not to lay out a new vision for the church. It's just to remind us of the one that we already have. And in case you're curious about what that is, for your convenience, it's nailed to the wall behind me. Our vision as a church is to see lives transformed by Jesus. And so if you have ever wondered why we do what we do, why we do things the way that we do them, the answer is to see lives transformed by Jesus. Now that little phrase, as simple as it sounds, uh, it does, it begs at least one question, that being, what is a life transformed by Jesus? What does one actually look like? Uh, Certainly everybody who comes to Jesus and has their life transformed by him, every one of us is going to be unique in certain ways. But the question is, are there common elements that should be present in every person's life who has legitimately been transformed by Jesus? And the answer, according to Scripture, is yes. It really boils down to three things. It's first and foremost, love for God. Secondly, it is growth in relationships with the people of God. And thirdly and lastly, it is service to the people that God has placed in your life. This is a bold statement to make, but I'll walk us through through this. Um, But biblically speaking... There is no reason to believe that your life has been transformed by Jesus unless those three things are present in your life and growing all throughout your life. All right? Bold statement to make, so let me walk through that. Uh, Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as somebody who's had their life transformed by Jesus but has a mindset that says, yeah, I'm not really interested in the God of the Bible, though he kind of seems angry or judgmental or narrow-minded which is a a mindset that is increasingly popular in our culture today. I like Jesus, but I don't know about the God of the Bible. The problem with that is Jesus said that if anyone has seen him, they have seen the Father because he and the Father are one. Jesus loved the Father. He served the Father. He submitted to the Father. And so to be transformed by him is to be transformed uh, into a love of God the Father, a love for God the Father. Similarly, Uh, It's deeply inconsistent. This sounds real kind of grating to our modern individualistic ears. But in a similar way, there's really, the Bible knows no such thing as someone who has been transformed by Jesus and yet has a mindset that says, but I don't really have any need for other Christians. I'm just going to figure this thing out all on my own. Uh, if If you try to take that mindset to the book of Acts, or to really any of the New Testament letters, what you'll find is that the Word of God always pairs together a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with other followers of Jesus. Since the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the local church is God's plan A for the development and discipleship of his people, and there is no plan B until he returns. Thirdly, and lastly, uh, it's also biblically completely impossible to say that my life has been transformed by Jesus And yet, I don't really have any desire to serve other people. I'd rather just live for myself. The problem with that is that Jesus Christ himself said that he came here not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which is the only reason that any of us have any hope whatsoever. Therefore, to be transformed by Jesus is to be transformed into a life of service. And so I say this to say, when we talk about lives transformed by Jesus, What we're talking about is lives marked by, first and foremost, love for God. Not a God of our invention or a God of our creation, but God as he has revealed himself in his word. Secondly, we're talking about lives marked by deep 
relationships with the people of God. And lastly, we're talking about lives marked by service to the people that God has placed around you, otherwise known as your community. Our belief, based on what we see in Scripture, is that not only are those three things the evidence that you've been transformed by Jesus, those three things are also the mechanisms by which you are progressively transformed into the likeness of Jesus all throughout your stay on this earth. And so our aim as a church is to see lives transformed by Jesus by helping people develop their love for God, grow in relationship with the people of God, and discover and exercise their gifts in service to the people that God has placed in your life. Okay? So now you can skip Dave Brower's Next Steps class. Encroaching on your territory, Dave, do something about it. Uh, the last uh, two weeks of this series, if, like I said, if you're hopping in for the first time, we've been talking about these three things, these three kind of aspects of a life transformed by Jesus. So two Sundays ago, Anthony kicked us off and talked about the first aspect, that's love for God. Last week, Dave Brower talked about the second aspect, relationships with the people of God. This week, to finish out this series, we are talking about the third and final aspect, that's service to the community. And to talk about that, we're going to be in a passage of Scripture I've never taught on a Sunday morning before. It's Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Even if you have not um, been in the Bible much in your life, there's some pretty famous verses in here that you've probably heard before. <clears throat> so we'll read that and get started. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. This is God's word. So I wanted to begin today by putting a question before you. The question is, How do you live in a fragmented society that disregards and even disdains what you believe? So in my personal time with God in the morning, I've been in the book of Jeremiah for the last several weeks now. And when when you uh, look at the context in which Jeremiah uh, wrote and prophesied, it is laughably relevant to where we are today. Jeremiah prophesied during a time when Babylon was the dominant world power in the ancient Near East. Israel rebelled against Babylon, so Babylon conquered them, and they brought a number of Israelites into exile in the ancient city of Babylon. And so you have all these Jewish exiles, 
that have been taken from their home and the way of life that they've known, and they kind of wake up one day in this brand new world, uh, in, a, in a city and in a culture that's filled with people that disregards or downright uh, disdains everything that they're about, their value system, their way of life, their understanding of morality, of sexuality, of the meaning and purpose of life, of who God is and how we should worship that God. They're in a world that is completely foreign to them. And the question that Jeremiah is answering in this passage we're looking at today is how do you live in the midst of a culture like that? How do you live faithfully as an exile? Now, you hear that question, and you know, maybe what comes to mind is, hey, that's historically interesting, but what does that have to do with us today? The answer is everything. Because the New Testament says that every single uh, Christian, every follower of Jesus, every person that claims to be a part of the people of God is an exile. By definition, we're living in a place that is not our home. And so we all have to answer this question. How do we live faithfully as exiles? But what's really fascinating to me is that this isn't even just a, it's not even a particularly and exclusively Christian issue that we're talking about. Uh, to explain what I mean, let me just tell you something that I'm, I'm confident you already know. We are living in a deeply fragmented society. I feel no need to explain or prove that to you. We all know that. And one of the interesting effects of our societal fragmentation, follow me here, is that pretty much everybody you talk to now feels like an exile. Let me give some examples of this. Uh, if you talk to liberal people, here we go. If you talk to liberal people or you listen to interviews by liberal people, without fail, you're eventually going to hear them talk about how they feel like they are oppressed and marginalized by a conservatism that seeks to, de to destroy them and their way of life. On the other hand, you talk to conservative people, and they feel like this culture is spiraling into an extreme liberalism that seeks to destroy them and their way of life. Uh, you have millions of ethnic minorities that are moving and have moved into this culture. Uh, they settle down only to feel like they don't quite belong here. Uh, meanwhile, you have natural-born citizens who feel like they are increasingly being made to feel like they themselves do not belong here. My point is, and I think I could walk through this for a while, but my point is everybody feels like an exile. And so the question that this passage answers, this isn't even... This isn't even just a, a question that Christians have to answer. This is a question that everybody has to answer. And if I can press this a little bit, I want to point out, I think everybody already has an answer to this question. Everybody, regardless of race, class, gender, ethnicity, political party, whatever it is, everybody has an answer to the question, how do I live in the midst of a culture that disregards or disdains what I believe? It's just a question of whether you've slowed down long enough to actually think about what your answer is. And I say this to say, what we're looking at here in Jeremiah 29 is God answering that question for the people who claim to be his people. So I don't think I need to tell you exactly how relevant this passage of Scripture is. Sometimes you kind of got to, you know, work to, to show people how this can, you know, impact their life or how they should tune in. Or what you, I just don't feel the need to do that with a passage of Scripture like this. If, if you claim to be a part of the people of God, this is an absolutely necessary text for you to understand. I, I, when I was putting this together, I was thinking about Paul's words in Acts 17 when he brought the gospel to Athens in the Areopagus. Paul makes this amazing claim where he says that God ordains the times and the places in which people live. 
And what that means is you may really hate what's going on in your neighborhood. You may really hate what's going on in society at large. But if you believe what the Bible says, then you believe that God has sovereignly ordained both where you live and when you live. And what he's telling you here in Jeremiah chapter 29 is exactly how he wants you to navigate the cultural moment that he has seen fit for you to live through. If you have any desire to live a life that pleases God, you cannot sidestep this passage of Scripture. And even if you're here and you might be on the fence about Christianity, you've been around it, maybe you were raised in it or you're new to it, the point is you're not even sure if you are a Christian, I think this passage is of incredible value and relevance to you because my conviction is that you're going to see God's answer to the question we're talking about today far more compelling far more inspiring, far more satisfying than any of the alternatives because I believe that God himself is far more compelling, inspiring, and satisfying than any of the alternatives. And so with that groundwork laid, we're going to hop in. The question is, how do you live in a fragmented society that either disregards or openly disdains what you believe? What you have here in this passage of Scripture is two wrong answers to that question, that are still pressures that God's people, and I think really all people, deal with even today, 2,000 years later. We're looking at two wrong answers to this question, God's answer to this question, and then lastly, we'll talk about how, how we can find the strength to do what it is that God calls us to do. So first off, let's talk about the wrong ways. So what you find here is that there, are, there were two groups of people that had their own agenda about how they wanted uh, these Jewish exiles to relate to Babylon. And God rejects them both. The first one is the, is the agenda of the Babylonians themselves. So the, the Babylonians had conquered Israel. They brought all these Jewish exiles back to Babylon. And, of course, they have an agenda for how they want the Israelites, Israelites to relate to them. Uh, and their agenda really boils down to one word. You've probably heard it before. It's called assimilation. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that Babylon was the dominant power in the ancient Near East. If you zoom out to human history, uh, it's completely appropriate to say that Babylon is one of the most impressive empires in all of human history. Uh, they actually boast one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And there's a reason that the Babylonian Empire was as dominant as it was. It's because they were brilliant and extremely skillful when it came to dealing with particularly unruly nations like Israel. Uh, they knew the best way to deal with an unruly nation is you simply force them to become like you. You essentially dangle a carrot in front of them and say, hey, we know you want the best jobs. We know you want recognition, power, influence, authority. You want to raise a family, all that kind of stuff, and be happy and all the stuff that the human heart naturally longs for. You can have all of that. You just have to become exactly like us. Babylon, essentially, when you zoom out across your Old Testament history, Babylon simply learned from the mistake that Egypt made. Because a couple hundred years before this, when Egypt dealt with the Israelites, they oppressed them and enslaved them and subjugated them. And what that led to, historically, what it almost always leads to, is revolution. And so Babylon knew you could avoid all of that mess if instead of oppressing people, you simply got them to become like you. Now the question is, how on earth are you going to do that? When you think about that. Babylon has murdered the friends, the family members, the loved ones of these Israelite exiles. They've destroyed their homes and brought them captive into this foreign city. They've ruined their lives. How on earth are you going to get people like that to, to assimilate to this culture that just conquered them? And the answer 
thousands of years ago, and the answer, even today, boils down to one thing. You give them an education. That's how you get people to assimilate. Right, Babylon knew the primary way to get a conquered people group to fall in line and become a part of your people group is simply give them a very particular education. And you see this in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel, which was written around the same time period, who himself was an Israelite exile, when he was brought to Babylon, he and his colleagues were first off given pagan names. But with that, they were also given what was basically the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an Ivy League Babylonian education. And it's a brilliant strategy. You know, the, the thought process is if you can just get these people to think like you, then you can get them to value the things that you value. You can get them to pursue the things that you pursue. You can get them to live the way that you live, and you slowly erode all the things that make them distinct as a people group. And therefore, in just a generation or two, that people group ceases to exist. They have become completely absorbed by your dominant people group. Now, why on earth would anybody do that? Because they want the best jobs. They want money. They want power. They want recognition. They want to fit in. They want to be accepted into social circles and climb social ladders. And to do that, you have to become exactly like the Babylonians. So that was the Babylonian agenda for the Israelite people. Congratulations. Everyone in this room now has enough of an education to become a dominant ancient Near Eastern society. You know how to do it. You've learned from Babylon. That's the first agenda here. The second agenda you see in this passage it's not assimilation, it's what you could call tribalism, and it's alluded to in verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> it says, For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. So read... The book of Jeremiah, specifically up to this point, chapter 29, and you'll find that pretty much every other Jewish prophet besides Jeremiah also had their own agenda for how they wanted the Jewish exiles to relate to Babylon. And you can see it specifically uh, just a chapter before this in verse 28. They were predicting that Babylon was just about ready to get destroyed. And so their advice was, don't go into the city at all. Their advice was become this sort of closed-off, holy huddle community that interacts with the city to the degree that you need to, to the degree that you absolutely have to, in order to enrich your tribe. So, so the thought process was become this holy huddle that stays outside of the city on what was called the Kibar Canal and, uh, and get the money and get the wealth and get the power. Basically, use the city for what you can to increase your tribe and then when God finally destroys it, you can go on about your merry way, having gotten everything that you can out of the experience. So what you have here is Babylon is saying, assimilate. Then every Jewish prophet other than Jeremiah is saying, no, don't do that, just congregate. And what God is saying here in Jeremiah chapter 29 is, don't do either one of them, they're both wrong. And God's answer to this question of how to relate to a culture so starkly different than you is found in, in verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> God says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. And then here in verse seven, it's probably the most famous part of this. It says, seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to 
Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Now, before we dig into exactly what God is calling for here, uh, I just want to take the time to explain how crazy this would have sounded to those exiles in Babylon. If we're going to be, you know, impacted by any, any particular passage of Scripture, we have to do what we can to try to hear it like the original recipients of it. So just consider this. St. Augustine, a name you may have heard of before, he wrote a book called The City of God, and in it he kind of draws out this idea that if you, if you trace the whole story found in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, there's this constant theme of two cities. There's the city of man kind of juxtaposed to the city of God. It's all throughout Old and New Testament. Even at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, John is still talking about New Jerusalem, this heavenly city as opposed to Babylon, this wicked earthly city. And, and what it's talking about is, you know, an earthly city, the city of man, which is, espouses the values of this world, and then the heavenly city, the city of God, which espouses, you know, the values that are dictated by what God says, what his nature is, and what he says is good. And if you want to see what makes these cities so unique and what they lead to, it's, it's actually found right in the beginning of the Bible, the first time that cities are, are explicitly mentioned in an in-depth way. So in Genesis chapter 11, this is right after God baptizes the whole world with a flood, we're told that all the peoples of the earth gathered to form a city, and in forming a city, they decided to build this tower called the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 11, we're told explicitly why they wanted to do all this. They wanted to make a great name for themselves. Now that idea, in a nutshell, is basically the ethos of the city of man. It's all about trying to make a great name for yourself. It's about approaching every person you interact with, every job opportunity you get. It's, it's about approaching life in general with a how does this benefit me kind of, let me try to fill this inner emptiness mindset. Now, I don't have to tell you when any group of people all move through life that way, that's going to lead to all kinds of, of exhaustion, all kinds of oppression, all kinds of corruption, all kinds of selfishness that we see in our societies today and that we all intuitively sense is wrong with this world. That's the city of man. Just one chapter after this, in Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram and he makes Abram this unbelievable promise. He says, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Basically, God's saying, Abram, I'm not just going to make you into a city. I'm going to fill all the cities of the earth with you. Through you, all families of the earth are going to be blessed. But hidden in the, kind of in the center of this promise, God says something that's meant to fly directly in the face of this Tower of Babel mindset. When he comes to Abram and makes him this promise, he says, I will make your name great. So, so what you have here is, is, a, is a perfect side-by-side -side comparison of what Augustine called the city of man versus the city of God. One of them moves through life with this inner hunger and, and a need to get things from, to, to get glory, to get uh, um, fullness from things and people. It's all about what I can get out of life, whereas the city of God is, is, is based on moving through life out of this deep inner fullness, that God has made a great name for me, that God has satisfied my heart in a way that nothing in this world can, and out of that fullness, I'm now free to love and serve and honor other people the way that God has done so for me. I don't have to tell you that those two mindsets are going to form radically different individuals, marriages, families, cities, and societies. All right, now I've said all this to make this point. What everybody thought in Jeremiah's day, 
And this, this is a clear mindset on into Jesus' day. And actually, if you just search yourself, I think that this is a mindset that a lot of people still have today. Let me repeat this. What everybody thought in Jeremiah's day is that the way God's going to do things is eventually he's going to have enough. And he's going to completely level the city of man so that the city of God can begin, which it makes sense. And you see this clear on into Jesus' day. Earlier this year, we spent um, several weeks in Mark's gospel account. And specifically in Mark's account, we see uh, a number of, of encounters Jesus had with his disciples where he talks very openly about his crucifixion and the disciples just don't get it. And we read that 2,000 years later and say how obtuse that they couldn't see what Jesus was talking about. But it's not that the disciples were unintelligent. They were just sure that they knew what Jesus was coming here to do. And in their mind, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the deliverer, well, then Jesus is going to overthrow the city of man in their day that was oppressing them, otherwise known as the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus went to the cross, they all fled because they thought the plan failed. But even after this, this is amazing, even after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to his disciples, thus proving, oh, he is the one that we've been waiting for, you can read this in Acts chapter 1. They are still asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And Jesus says, nope, and then he floats back up into heaven. And then the church is born, and 2,000 years later, here we are. My point is, people always have and, and even still do to a degree think that, of course, the way that God's going to operate is he's going to end the city of man with its corruption and its violence and its oppression and its selfishness so that the city of God can start, because how could the city of God start until the city of man ends? With all of that in mind, I just ask you to see this text with a new set of eyes. Because what God is saying here, and this completely flies in the face of that mindset, God is saying, no, no, you've completely misunderstood the game plan here. I want you to be the city of God right in the midst of the city of man. God's saying, I want you to live as the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, right in the, right in the middle of the Babylon that I have sovereignly placed you in. Because the kingdom of God is not bound by any particular time or location. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 when he said that his people would be like a city that is set on a hill. It's this idea that in every nation, tribe, and tongue that the gospel message enters into, communities of people would be formed that are basically like little miniature cities within the city at large that are living out in this world a value system that finds its origin in heaven and ultimately in God himself. And, and what God is doing here in Jeremiah 29 is he's telling you and I, every, and everybody that has the privilege of looking at this text, he's telling us what he wants this city, his city, to actually be like, how he wants us to interact with the world around us. And, and the most famous part of this passage, the one we're going to focus on, is found here in verse 7, where Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city. Now, maybe you've heard this before, but the Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses here is the Hebrew word shalom. And there is simply no English word that even comes close to capturing the wealth of meaning that the Hebrew word shalom really en encapsulates. All right? Some versions of the Bible translate this peace, but peace, our English word, just again, it doesn't even scratch the surface. When we talk peace, we're talking about the cessation of open conflict or maybe some sort of inner stillness. When the Bible talks about peace, this Hebrew word shalom, it's to, I'll, I'll put it this way. 
For a human being to experience shalom is for a human being to experience absolute flourishing in every dimension of their humanity. Meaning, uh, a, a human being experiencing shalom is absolutely flourishing, first off, physically, but also mentally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, practically, socially, in every single category, they are filled to the brim and overflowing. And now, now having that in mind, I just want you to try to hear this like these exiles heard this. God is saying, I want you to seek that for the city that just murdered people that you love and pulled you from your homes. God says, I want you to seek that for this city that is filled with idols and regularly not only practices but celebrates things that I have told you are detestable in my sight. What God is saying here is I want you to seek that. I want you to work for that. I want you to pray to me for that for these people that are actively trying to stamp out everything that I have called you as my people to stand for. That, God says, is what it means to be his people. Now, you may have noticed that I chose to teach on this particular passage on the week that we're talking about being a church that serves the community. There's a reason for that. The reason I wanted to spend time in this is so that all of us, myself included, would be able to see that when we talk about being a church that serves the community, I just hope we all see, based on what God's saying here, that we are talking about something so much deeper than simply signing up for Serve Week in the summer and volunteering at Winter Relief in December. Both of those things are so good. Both of those things are vital. Both of, we do both of those things and, you know, School of Charm and the Helping Up Mission and all that kind of stuff. We do all of those things because we see them so clearly commanded and so close to the heart of God in Scripture. However, being a church that serves the community is about something so much deeper than that. It's about something so much more demanding than that. But I think if we get honest and we just let this vision that God is painting for his people speak for itself, we would agree, yeah, it's more demanding, but it's also far more compelling. And it's something that the first followers of Jesus were once known for. When I was putting this teaching together, I came across an article that was written. Uh, it was date stamp March 16th. 2020, which means it was about eight days after COVID completely shut the world down. And the article was written by a guy who was trying to talk about what might be a Christian response to the coronavirus. And basically his idea was we can find some illumination by looking back at how God's people navigated the plagues that swept across the Roman Empire in the first several centuries. And in his article, he pulled several paragraphs from a book uh, by a sociologist and historian named Rodney Stark. His book's called The Rise of Christianity. <clears throat> and in it, Stark makes this really strong case that the reason that Christianity exploded like it did in the Roman Empire is because it outloved the rest of the world. <clears throat> so he's, he's quoting Stark, and, and uh, Stark makes this case. He talks about how in the year 165, uh, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, um, this plague swept across the Roman Empire. We think now our best guess is it was probably the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever it was, it lasted 15 years, and it killed anywhere from one-quarter to one-third the population of the Roman Empire. Uh, it subsided, and about a century later, another plague, maybe, maybe the same disease, maybe not, the point is another plague swept across the empire once again, and people completely understandably lost their minds. And uh, the first thing that people did, if they had the means, was they fled the cities. 
because although they had a pre-scientific understanding of medicine, they knew that it was an infectious disease, and therefore the further you get from people, the safer you're likely to be. So the first thing people did is they got out of the cities, but of course not everybody financially could afford to do that. And so the people that were forced to remain behind in the cities, we have literal historical accounts of this, they were known to, at the first sign of infection, people were known to throw their closest friends and even their family members out into the street and simply leave them to die there. It got so bad that, that they were carting off bodies of both dead and dying people. And even with those cartfuls, there were piles of them in the streets. It must have looked like the most horrifying dystopian future movie that we can think of. Uh, people completely abandoning any kind of humanity and forsaking people that, you know, once they said they loved. In the midst of that, account after account after account tells us that Christians were known for, th- for really three things. First off... Christians were known for deliberately staying behind in the cities when everyone else fled. Secondly, Christians were known for actively pursuing the group of people that the rest of the world was trying to get away from. That's the infected. But thirdly, and this is the most important thing, Christians were known, please believe me, no one had seen this before followers of Jesus. Christians were known as a group of people who were willing to care even for people who did not live or believe like them. They cared not only for their own, but for their pagan neighbors. When the Roman Empire saw that, it captured their imagination, it captured their heart, and and, and what we see historically is not despite, but actually because of those epidemics, Christianity took off like a rocket. Now, in in the, the early fourth century, Emperor Julian, who hated Christianity, he wanted to see it die, he wanted to see paganism revived, he looked out across his empire and he saw the way that Christianity took off, and he knew what it was about. He knew that Christians were just really charitable people, so he actually wrote a letter commissioning the pagan priesthood to try to outgive and outserve the Christians. The letter survived. This is what it says, referring to us, to Christians. He said, those impious Galileans, which is the greatest name for Christians that anybody's ever come up with, those impious Galileans, in addition to their own, support ours, and it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. And what he's come to terms with uh, is that, that this group of men and women who claim to be followers of a dead Jewish carpenter that came back to life... This group was the first group of people that history had ever seen that were willing to love and serve and care for people who were different than them, people who didn't believe like them, people who hated them, even if it cost them their lives, which it frequently did. And the point is, Emperor Julian could not help but take notice of that. The Roman Empire could not help but take notice to that. And eventually in the year 380, the Roman emperor Theodosius actually declared Christianity the official belief system of the Roman Empire. Now what that means, and actually what I'm telling you right now is for a lot of people, one of the most convincing evidences of Christianity that at least has caused a lot of people to ask, okay, how did it do this? What I'm telling you is it is a historical fact that in the span of just 350 years, Uh, Rome, the most dominant human empire in the face of human civilization, in 350 years, it went from murdering the founder of Christianity to publicly declaring the truth of Christianity and making Christianity its official belief system. And what a whole lot of historians have done is they've looked at that and scratched their heads and say, okay, how do you explain this? And what you would expect is to see all these accounts of Christians finally having enough and taking up the sword and overthrowing the government, but we don't have a single account of that. Instead, 
What happened was men and women who had been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus did exactly what God commands his people to do here. They relentlessly sought the shalom of an empire that disagreed with them, that disregarded them, that despised them, and actively hunted them like animals. They loved those people until they changed that entire empire's heart. Once upon a time, that's what followers of Jesus were known for, and it's what followers of Jesus can be known for again. The question, and this will be the last question that I ask and answer today, is how? How did they do that then? How can any of us do that now? <clears throat> we're almost done. I just ask you to lean in here. When you, th- when you think about what we're being told to do here, if I can just make this text personal for you, when you approach a text of Scripture like this, This is God through his word telling you that he wants you to be the kind of person that is willing to enter into a world that is deeply hostile to you. This is God telling you he wants you to be the kind of person that is willing to enter into a a very real darkness and pour your life out and lay your life down for people, even people who are different than you, people who don't believe what you believe, people who are downright hostile to you and everything that you stand for. And you zoom out from that and you think, does that sound like anybody you've ever heard of? Now, I don't know what, the, what these first exiles thought when they got a command like this, but you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see no one in Israel faithfully walked in obedience to the command God lays out for his people here. The Old Testament ends in a catastrophe. But when the New Testament begins, there's this figure that comes out of nowhere, unlike anyone the world has ever seen before because he wasn't from this world. His name was Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus in these terms before. I can honestly say I have not until I put this teaching together. But would you just consider this? In the context of this passage, Jesus Christ is the ultimate exile. No one, has, no one knows what it's like to be in exile more than Jesus. Because think about it this way. In coming to this earth, Jesus left heaven. But in going to the cross, heaven left him. And so at the end of Jesus' life, what you're seeing is that Jesus truly was a man without country. Jesus was, in every sense of the word, homeless. Jesus was completely, cosmically, utterly, infinitely alone. Betrayed by the people he came to save, abandoned by the people he invested his life in, forsaken even by his own father, no one knows what it's like to live as an exile more than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he went through that, the gospel tells us, for us. But I'll tell you, other religions, and even people who claim no religion at all, can look at what Jesus did and find it inspiring. For whatever reason, there's still a lot of people that kind of have this vague interest in Jesus. I was just listening to somebody who's obviously not a Christian this week talk about how inspiring it is that Jesus, at the end of his life, he's praying for the forgiveness of his murders. A lot of people... Even, even people that, that claim no religion whatsoever can look at what Jesus did and say, yeah, that's really inspiring. But please understand, a Christian, a person who has had their life transformed by Jesus, doesn't just look at what Jesus did and find it inspiring. They look at what Jesus did and they find it personally heartbreaking because they understand that Jesus didn't just do what he did for his enemies. He did what he did for you and I while we were his enemies. Paul tells us while we were his enemies, while we were actively espousing this way of life that was completely contrary to everything God says is good, while we were disregarding and disdaining Jesus, while we were living as citizens of Babylon, 
The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the true citizen of heaven, died for us, not only so we could find a home in him, but so that we could move through this life with this surefire hope that we will live to see the home that we have always longed for, but never been able to find in this world. All the way at the end of the Bible, what we see is that when Jesus Christ is finished the work that he began on Mount Calvary, when Jesus finishes that work, the promise that you have in him is not just that he's going to take you to your true home, but that he's going to take your home to you, that you and I will wake up in a new heavens, in a new earth, and realize this is the city I have longed for all my life. This is the home that I've been looking for in every home I've tried to make in this life. And although we'll never perfectly experience that until Jesus completes what he started, we can have experiences of that kind of shalom now by grace through faith in his name. And the whole idea of Christianity is that when men and women begin to experience, begin to understand in a personal way all that Jesus Christ has gone through for us so that we could experience a kind of shalom we would have never experienced outside of him It creates a community that's able to do what God calls his people to do here in Jeremiah. And as progressive transformation takes place in our lives, more and more it ceases to be about making a great name for ourselves or making a home for ourselves in this world, and it increasingly becomes about simply seeking to do for one more person what God through Christ has done for us. And so if there's anything that I hope you take away from this teaching today, it's this idea that when we talk about being a church that serves the community, we're talking about something so much much grander than simply signing up for the next serve project or volunteering on Sunday morning, even though those things are so important and we're so thankful for the people that do that. What we're talking about is what God called his people to do in the ancient city of Babylon thousands of years ago. It's about taking the one life that God has given you and doing the most counterintuitive thing imaginable with it, which is living it for someone other than yourself. And there's exactly one reason why we should do that. It's because that's exactly what God through Christ has done for us. That right there is what we're about. That is why we do everything that we do the way that we do it. And so moving forward, whether you've been a part of this church for years or you're new and you're trying to figure out, could you put down roots here and make this place your home, I just want you to know Moving forward, every decision we make, the ones that you like, the ones that you really don't care for, I just hope you understand why we do what we do. It's so that one more person might have their life transformed by the Savior that is still transforming lives, to see lives transformed by Jesus. That's what we're about. If that means something to you, I think you and I are going to get along just fine. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, in light of this teaching, that video, and this entire series, the only request I have is, God, would you just make us a community of people that sees lives transformed by Jesus, that we ourselves would be a community that would be progressively transformed into the likeness of your son all throughout our time here, but in addition to that, Father, my conviction is that the only hope this world has the only way that this world's going to get any better for the four kids that I'm raising and all the kids that we're, we're handing this world off to is more people that bow their head and bend their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you make us a community that is effective in seeing that happen? 
that we would beat back the gates of hell, throw open the gates of heaven so that people might have their lives transformed by your son Jesus, the only hope that we have. For your glory and our joy, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Have a good week.